Philippians, the third chapter, and hold that place and then go to Psalm 137. The message this morning is one God gave me 30 years ago, or maybe even longer. I have shared it literally all over the nation, several different parts of the world. It was usually the message I would share on a Sunday morning or a Sunday night when I first addressed new congregations that I had not visited there before. I've seen God use, use it and move it and touch it and struggled all week long with, with what to share this morning. And I really felt like there was someone here today that really needs to hear this. And that's what I'm really believing. There's someone here today that really needs to hear this. If you will uh, be so kind later in the week to check out our new formatted uh, podcast. Uh, Austin has, has, cl- has cleaned it up. Some intros, some outros really looks nice. He shared with me yesterday, and I, it's, this is hard to grasp, so I'm about to share with you, but in the past five years, Church of the Harvest podcast has had over 70,000 hits. That's a lot. That's a lot of hits. That's a lot of, that's a lot of word going out to people. We may never meet. We may never be a part of their life, but every Sunday they look forward to watching that podcast. They may not have a local church or they may have a local church, but most of you know here at Harvest, we don't really spend a lot of time with theology, although theology is important. We don't spend a lot of time with doctrine, although doctrine is important. We have the reputation of being a how-to church, how to survive, how to overcome, how to win, how to succeed. And I believe that every time that we come to the house of God, we should be stronger, healthier, better. We come in one way, leave another, as Pastor Rhonda mentioned, the Bradford pears, we planted those trees 23 years ago. And every year they come back fuller, they come back stronger, they, they come back more beautiful. Uh, yesterday it looked like our church was surrounded with snow because they're, they're on all three sides of our property. And I'm just reflecting the, the, the goodness of God, how when we get planted in the right soil and get the right water, and the right fertilizer. Fertilizer is important, and that's probably just junk that we deal with <laughs> with everybody else in our life and our husbands and our wives. How many can, can relate this? Sometimes we just deal with junk, but aren't you glad that everything needs to be fertilized once in a while? And so this morning, if you have the Word of God, my thought this morning, and I've, I've changed the title of this message. I've changed the, the, the foundational scripts of this message. I've changed the illustration of this message, and it seems like Every time I share it, it just seems like it's fresher and fresher. So look at somebody and say, that was then, this is now. That was then, this is now. I believe this morning that it's God's will for you to leave this place blessed, and I believe it's God's will for you to leave this place happy. I just believe that's, that's God. It's easier to smile than it is to frown. I believe that God wants you to leave this building encouraged, happy and blessed. So I have found a scripture in the Bible that when I share this scripture, many of you are going to break out into a thunderous response of joy. Many of you are going to clap, shout, do some flips, some cartwheels, because I want to share a scripture with you this morning that's supposed to make you happy and supposed to make you blessed. If you look at with me at Psalm 137, and I'm reading from the King James Version, if you'll notice the very last scripture In that chapter of Psalms 137, are you ready? Wait for it. Here we go. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Now let me read it again to make sure that we are all on the same page. We're in the same portion of the Bible. 
We're in Psalm 137, and we're at verse 9. Are you ready? Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Last night, or yesterday afternoon, in the waiting room of the hospital intensive care, there was a family there that had three little ones, and they didn't give a flying flip what their kids were doing. I mean, these kids were fighting, they were wrestling, they were spinning, they were twirling, they were... And I usually, I usually really don't get... I, I, things like that don't bother me. Things like that don't irritate me. But when they, when they roll their big Tonka trucks on my $300 crocodile boots, then sometimes I might get a, a little bit... I'm looking, I'm looking over the, at the parents like saying... Hello, your kids are about to demolish this waiting room. Hello, these are your kids, right? You need, and they just completely, I mean, they just, for two hours solid, they just, they just terrorize the waiting room. And I'm thinking, happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. Several, 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 several years ago, probably 35 to 40 years ago, there was a commercial on television that was hilarious. I believe originally it was a black and white commercial, but it was two boys, nine, ten years of age, sitting down at the breakfast table, and in front of them was a bowl of live cereal. How many can remember that will show you how, how prehistoric you really, you really are? Old, old commercial. And one little boy is looking at the other and says, you eat it. And his friend says, no, you eat it. Okay, they're debating over whether to eat the live cereal. And then this little guy about four years of age walks in the room and they said, hey, let's give it to Mikey. He'll eat anything. And so they watch Mikey walks up to the cereal, takes a spoonful, puts it in his mouth, big old smile, takes another bite. And one boy says to the other, hey, he likes it. Mikey likes it. I don't remember that commercial. That is an old, old commercial. Well, about 20 years later, they redid that commercial. And it was a breakfast table. And there were two dudes sitting at the table, and there was a huge bowl of live cereal. Now, these guys had big old shoulders, big old arms, big old necks, big old weightlifter-looking weight kind of guys. And one guy looked at his friend and said, you eat it. And his friend says back, no, you eat it. Neither one would eat it. And all of a sudden, in the background, you heard this noise. And a giant of a man walks into the room, six foot eight, 22-inch arms, 29-inch waist. 56-inch chest, big old muscle-bound guy. One guy sitting at the table looks at the other and says, hey, let's give it to Mikey. He'll eat anything. Mikey walks up to the table, picks up the bowl and pours the entire contents in his mouth and sets it back down. And one guy looks at the other and says, hey, he likes it. Mikey likes it. Well, those of you that have gone through that transition realize that Mikey did not stay cute and cuddly as a four-year-old. He has now developed into a fully grown man. And that's kind of the thought that we're sharing here in, in Psalm 137. If you'll notice verse 1, By the rivers of Babylon there we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. We hanged our harps in the midst of the willow trees thereof. There they that wasted us required us a song, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song? In a strange land. This is a very, very tragic moment in the history of the Israelites. God tried to warn Ezekiel, uh, God tried to warn Hezekiah 
through Isaiah that there are some things out of order, but Hezekiah not pay attention to the confrontation of the prophet. And we find that the generation of Babylon who were evil, they were horrendous, they were, they were, they were, they were, they were just some really, really bad people. They came in and attacked Israel, murdered most of the women and children, carried all the sons and daughters to Babylon. That's how Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel got placed in, in, into, the, into the wilderness. It was a really, really bad time in, the, in their history. And they were so sad that they lost their song. It's a scary day when you lose your song. It's a scary day when you hang your musical instruments and you say, I can't sing anymore because of all the bad stuff that's happened to us. The willow tree is the only tree of nature that refuses to praise God. Its limbs, instead of going forward like every other tree that we have in our garden, its limbs are pointed downward. It's a very depressed tree. It's a, pre, it's a tree that, that represents a nation that forgot to praise and worship God. Here they are. They're in captivity. They're being murdered. They're being tortured. Their houses are being burned. But at the end of this chapter, they have a revelation. They realize that they are in bondage, they are in captivity. But if they could find a way to destroy the children of the Babylonians, then that generation could not grow up to torture them, to, to bring them pain, to bring them sorrow. It was a revelation. I believe there are a lot of things in our life, they, they start out little. Maybe a habit, maybe just something that, that we, we say or places we go or something we do. And we never intended for it to get a rope around our neck. We never intended for it to choke the very life out of our body. There's a very famous lake. I've had the privilege of fishing it. I did not catch any large bass, but there's a lake in California in the L.A. area called Castaic Lake. And there was a window when this lake was producing 20 to 22-pound largemouth bass, which is a very large bass. And I think the, the record in the state of Tennessee is almost 14 pounds. Florida has a record of like 26 pounds. So California was producing some of the biggest bass for all the anglers would go. They would have all these tournaments. Kodak would have a tournament. Budweiser would have a tournament. Pepsi would have a tournament. All these famous fishermen would fly into California, get their boats there, and they, and they would go and fish these tournaments. One particular tournament, fishing had been very poor. They really weren't, the fish weren't responding. Nobody was catching anything. So they were very surprised when one morning about 10 o'clock, a little 11, 12-year-old boy comes to the camp dragging a stringer of trophy bass. Immediately, all the fishermen surrounded him and was asking him, what part of the lake did you catch him? What were you using for bait? And he told the guys, he said, I was using worms for bait, but you got to be careful because these worms will bite. And he held up a manage jar full of baby rattlesnakes he had found under a log on the way to the fishing hole. The little boy died in the back of that ambulance because he didn't realize that not only can big snakes bite, but also little snakes can bite. And this morning, as we look at things in life and as we look at where we're at, we look at things that we've encountered, things that we've gone through, I think it's easy sometimes to whitewash or to cover up a hurt, to cover up a pain. I've never seen this in Scripture before, but this morning in the Living Bible, Jeremiah 6 and 14 makes a statement, if you don't acknowledge you have a wound, you cannot be healed. We are trained well to be Mr. Plastic, Mrs. Plastic. We're trained well. You ask somebody how they're doing. Oh, I'm doing great. How are you doing? When they're really miserable and they're going through a lot of stuff in life. But we have been programmed not to let others see us cry or not to let others see us hurt. 
But Jeremiah said, unless you acknowledge there's a pain, unless you acknowledge there's a wound, then we cannot go on with life and be what God wants us to be and be healed. And God is a healing God. He's, one of his names is Jehovah, our healer. And that's what he does, and that's what he wants to do. But I think that sometimes not just a physical healing and not just a spiritual healing, but sometimes a mental healing. Maybe sometimes from where we've come from, where we've been, the life that we've lived. Things have happened that seem again to have a hook in our jaw. We can't seem to get free. And I want to bring attention to Philippians, the third chapter and the 13th verse. And this is by the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, we first see him mentioned at the stoning of Stephen. A very tragic day. The first martyr of the New Testament church. Stephen is being stoned for his testimony, for his life, for his, for his witness. And the word says the apostle Paul at that time was not the apostle. His name was Saul and was holding the coats of, of those that were stoning Stephen. So a guy obviously involved in the violence of destroying the church in that window. You may or may or not know this, but in that window, Nero was insane. He was mentally insane and he was responsible for the death of hundreds of thousands of Christians. The hanging gardens of Nebuchadnezzar did not com compare with the hanging gardens that Nero had. But when he wanted to walk at night and to see his garden, he would take Christians or his, his entourage would take Christians, would dip them in oil and then place them on a stake and light them on fire. And that's how he observed his garden at night. Most of those Christians were there. A lot of the Christians were fed to lions and, and the gladiators would battle one another. And most of those Christians were gladiators or Nero's garden because of one man. And that was the Apostle Paul. He had an open warrant. He had permission from Rome to go into any home where there was a Christian, separate mother and father, separate parents from their children, drag mothers and fathers off to be fed to lions, to be tortured, and drag children off to be in incarcerated and to be in prison. That's what he did for a living, and he thought he was doing it for God. But most of you know, on the way to Damascus, he saw a light, he heard a voice, and the voice said, said Saul, why are you doing what you're doing? You're driving the nails deeper in my hands. He has a personal encounter, a close encounter of the, third, of the third kind. God changes his name. God gives him a purpose. God gives him a destiny. Wrote, writes almost half the New Testament. Incredible man of God was caught up into heaven, talked about heaven, was stoned, left for dead three times, survived shipwreck, an awesome, powerful man of God. But there had to have been windows in his life when he would go into a city, started churches all over the world, would go into a city and he would teach and somebody would walk up and say, you don't remember me. But when I was just a child, you came to my home with the band of soldiers and you, you took my mother and father off to prison. They were murdered. They were incarcerated. I alone escaped, but I'm here to tell you that I read one of your letters and I forgive you for what you did for me. I don't hold any of that odd against you. And it's great to be the one that forgives. But when you're on the other side of the coin and you're the one that caused the hurt and caused the pain, it's tough sometimes to release that and let it go. I remember as a kid growing up that some of my glorious memories of, 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 of growing up in the church of God was going to youth camp. Youth camp was a week full of all kinds of fun things and you found a new girlfriend and you held her hand, your hand got all sweaty and you just thought that was so cool. And I remember that every year at youth camp, they would sometimes judge the success of the youth camp if Hank Davis and Gary Hammond gave their heart to God. Gary 
was a state overseer's son. He was a rat. I was a preacher's kid. I was a rat because I hung around with deacon's kids. The deacon taught me how to smoke a cigar. And so I really, I really was a punk, and I was always in trouble. And I remember one particular year at youth camp, they were having a counseling session, Pastor Desmond, how they were going to control Hank Davis and Gary Hammond. Well, while all of the counselors were gone, there was this squirrel that was stupid enough to run up a tree in front of me, and I took this rock and chunked it at the squirrel. I missed the squirrel, but the rock bounced back down and hit a camper right on the eye, cut his eye, had to go to town, which was 15 miles downhill. It was, it was Camp Idlewild, and he had to get stitches, and so I've already put a guy in the hospital, and then here comes the committee and said, Hank Davis, if you or Gary Hammond cause any challenges this year, we're going to call your parents and send you home. And my dad pastor, one of the strongest churches in California. Gary's dad was a state overseer of California, so they were pretty brave, not realizing we'd already put a guy in the hospital, but you know what? That night, Gary Hammond and I we went to a special, I guess I could tell this story. We went to a special illustrated sermon and a dear, dear friend of mine, I've preached for him twice now in my ministry, but he had this, he had this well and this fishing pole and there was a little guy hiding down the well and he was teaching us what would happen if you mess with the things of the world. And so he put that fishing pole down in there and, and the little kid down there in the, where you couldn't see tied a pack of cigarettes on the, on the fishing pole. And he reeled it up and said, this is what the enemy wants to bind you with these cigarettes. And then he put it back down there and he pulls up a six pack of beer. And, and he said, the enemy wants to bind. And talk about little snares, little things. Well, that night after everybody went to bed, Gary and I went to the chapel I smoked every cigarette and Gary drank all the beer. But the next night we went to the altar, glorious, glorious salvation. We got saved, sanctified, filled with heaven's sweet Holy Ghost and, uh, and made it till camp meeting, which all the pastors got together. And probably back to the camp meeting goes hang around preacher's kids. I mean, they were all rats. You all know that. But there, there are wonderful memories of life. I, I grew up in a great home. I grew up in a leave it to beaver family. It was just, it was just an awesome home. But then there's the, there's the other side of the street where you remember in your life that you did some really hurtful things and some really painful things. And most of you know I lost everything, including my wife, because of, because of crack cocaine. And most of you know that it, it cost me everything. And it, it cost me for several years after trying to, restore, trying to recover, trying to get back on my feet. But I learned what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3 and 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. And he's saying, you know what? I haven't arrived yet. I'm not, I'm not done all that God wants me to do. I've not been all that God wants me to be. But this one thing, watch this, I do. He didn't say he went to deliver the servants of Benny Hinn. He didn't say that Nancy Harmon sang over him. He said it was something that he did. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to the things which are before. I press towards the mark of the prize, the high calling of God through Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul had to make a dominant decision in his, in his psyche that he was going to forget the events of yesterday, all the bad he did, all the hurt he caused, all the parents that he murdered, all the lives he was responsible for. He said, I can't live with that guilt. I can't live with that pain. I can't live with that memory. I have got to forget it. Now, the ability to forget doesn't mean that, that you're not still responsible for some things you participated in, but it keeps you from staying awake at night. It keeps you from constantly beating yourself up and judging yourself and putting yourself down because of some mistakes that you made earlier in life. Let me tell you something. The call of God is without repentance. That means he's not sorry he called you. He's not sorry that he put anointing on you, a covering on you. He knew there would be a bump in the road. 
He knew that somewhere in life I would take a grocery bag, put it over my head, poke a hole in it, and then somebody would blow marijuana smoke until I couldn't stand up. He knew there'd be dumb moments like that. He knew there'd be boiler makers. He knew there'd be margaritas. He knew there would be all that. He still called me. He still called me, and he walked me through all that stuff, and I didn't die. I survived. I, I'm, I'm alive, praise God. And I'm here to tell you, you have, you have to make a, a mental decision to forget the past. Forget and forgive are kissing cousins. They can never be separated, divided, or divorced. There are many, in the sound of my voice, and realizing that this will be podcast this afternoon, there, there are many in the sound of my voice that they have not hurt somebody, but somebody else has hurt them. And it's tough to forgive. It's tough to walk sometimes when you, when you know they would probably do it again if they had another chance. Can anybody relate to what I'm saying? There are broken relationships. There are, there, are, there, are, there are things in our life where people have went out of their way to hurt and harm us and, and to mess us up. And you know, I don't, I don't care really how long you've been serving the Lord. There's always going to be times when your mind is going to get away from you and you're going to think something you shouldn't think or say something you shouldn't say. A couple of weeks ago, I saw someone out in, in town that caused me a lot of hurt and harm, a lot of pain, a lot of, a, a, a lot, a, a lot of stuff. And I, when I first saw him, well, I won't tell you what I first wanted to do, but I wanted to go put the Jack Bauer punch on us. The first thing I wanted to do. And then mentally, I said some things to him that, that I, haven't used, I haven't used that word for years. But it was there, and I felt it, and I wanted to... I wanted, I'll just tell you, I just want to flip him off. I mean, I just wanted to, I want to go over and beat the living, and I, and I can and I wanted to. And I sat there and I said, wow. I said, where did that come from? Hello, where did that come from? I mean, I've, I've tried to forgive him. I've told the Lord I've forgiven him. I've sung, come by y'all. I mean, I've, I've got out some of his, some old letters. And, and it, it was like, I thought that I had forgiven him, but I realized I hadn't forgiven him at all. And if he walked in that door right now, I'd probably lay down the microphone and go and slap the living daylights at him. But that that's what the word says about renewing. Obviously, there's a part of my mind that has not yet been removed. But I take great confidence in the fact the Apostle Paul, writing half the New Testament, says, Church, I have not yet arrived. Thank you, the Apostle Paul. That gives me permission to have the spirit of slap and the spirit of cussing one out. As long as I don't say it or do it right, I'm okay. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise this morning. <laughs> when you... When you reflect on the transition that takes place by forgetting the past, you wonder, how does that happen? In Isaiah 43 and 25, the Apostle Paul, I'm sorry, I'm sorry Isaiah shares a message that I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions and will not remember thy sins. We grew up in the church singing a song, my God can do anything, anything. And we, we really believe that God can do anything, but we have learned in the scripture, there are some things that God cannot do. God cannot remember the mistakes of yesterday if they're under the blood. And let me explain that for a minute. Being left-handed, uh, I, I grew up in a generation, my aunt is left-handed, I've got some cousins that are left-handed. I grew up in a generation that the family raised me saying, go, go, go with it. In other words, they didn't try to make me right-handed, they let me be left-handed. And growing up, there were a lot of snags and a lot of issues in life because I was left-handed. They, they don't make a left-handed nail gun. At one time, I had a very good job, pneumatic nailing, but the, 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 the magazine was on the wrong side. and had to shift hands every time I put nails in it. They don't make a left-handed skill saw. 
Uh, they don't make a very good left-handed baseball glove. It took me 10 years to really find a good glove that I liked that I could use. So, so being, being left-handed, there was some frustrations and there were some negatives. And those negatives in second, third grade, I never got good grades on handwriting because I just, I just being, being left-handed, when I would write, my hand would smear what I had done and it looked terrible. So then I would crank my wrist all the way around and it hurt my wrist to write like that. And eventually, and, and you guys need to be thankful you got these, these pens that are smear proof. And, but we didn't have those things. I, I don't know if any, I don't want you to lift your hand and show your age today, but maybe you grew up in that generation. And so in seventh grade, I had two electives that I, I could take. And one of those electives was typing. The typing teacher, her name was Miss Boss. She was not married. She was drop dead gorgeous. And I got my first crush. I typed all the way through seventh grade. I did so well. I took typing in eighth grade. I took typing in ninth grade. And then I graduated to, to senior high school. And I kind of lost Miss Bottle. I guess she got married. I don't know what happened. But she was my hero. And I typed all the way through high school. I typed all the way through college. But in frustration and typing, there were two things you could do for $29.95 in Southern California. Earl Shive would paint any car, any color for $29.95, and you could buy a Smith Corona typewriter for $29.95. Unfortunately, that was the generation before Correcto Ribbon. That was the generation before Spell Check. And what would happen if you were typing away and you made a mistake, you pulled the paper out, crumbled it up, and threw it in the trash can. And you've seen writers by trying to get some thought. They got a, a pile full of, of trash can. The, the, the trash in the, can, in the can, and it was so frustrating, but something happened in the early 70s. There was an invasion from Britain. There were, there were bugs, there were beetles, there were doors, there were animals, there was the, there was the, there was the rolling stones, there was the, and then there was a group that came from Great Britain called the monkeys. How many remember the monkeys? Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. People say we monkey around. We're too busy singing to run anybody down. Their big song was, then I saw her face. Now I'm, a, oh, I'm, oh you're showing your age and I, I can see that. But something else happened when the monkeys came to America, their moms came to America. And Mike Nesbitt, the guy, the monkey that always wore the cap, like the tanner cap, okay, his mom invented a product called liquid paper. And I don't know if she's probably dead now, but if I ever meet her, I'm gonna kiss her right on the mouth because she saved the day. I could be typing away. I make a mistake. I'd have to throw the paper out. I just turn it up, take that liquid paper, blot out that mistake, blow on it, dry it, type it, move it back down and type right over it just as if I'd never made a mistake, that liquid paper. In the New Testament, the first chapter of, of John, John the Baptist baptized his cousin Jesus and there's a manifestation. God speaks, Holy Spirit comes down. It was a glorious moment. A little later that day, John sees Jesus walking and he makes a statement. Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. What a statement. What a truth. What, a, what, an, what, a, what an idea. And something that you need to know about the blood of Jesus. That before Jesus was born in the Old Testament, if you sin, I'm talking to every single person in this room, depending, on, depending upon your finances, it was necessary. It was a law that you went and purchased a sacrifice. If you were poor, you would purchase a turtle dove or a pigeon. If you had a little bit more money, you would purchase a lamb or a calf. But whatever you purchased, you would take that sacrifice to the high priest. 
The high priest never looked at you. He never examined you. He never questioned you. He never asked you, does your grandmother pray? Did you go to church? None of those questions. He simply looks at the sacrifice. He knows why you're there. That was a law. If you sinned, you took the sacrifice. So the high priest would examine the sacrifice. And if that lamb was without spot or without blemish, if that sacrifice was pure, that high priest would carry that lamb to the altar, cut its throat, and the minute the blood of that lamb hit that altar, your sins were forgiven. That was Old Testament. But today, do you know what I can do at any time of day, at any moment that I, I desire? I can go into the presence of God and I can say, God, please forgive me of the mistakes, the wrong thoughts, the want to fight somebody, want to cuss somebody up. Please forgive me. You know what God doesn't say? Excuse me. Are you a member of the Baptist church? Excuse me. Did you tithe last Sunday? Excuse me. Does your grandmother pray? No, God says, on whose authority, on what premise do you dare come into my throne? And you know what I say? I say, God, behold the lamb. Examine the lamb, Christ Jesus. And if the lamb is worthy, I come into your presence based on the blood. And may I tell you this morning, the lamb is worthy from the foundation of the world, sinless and spotless. He gave his life. He shed his blood in the liquid paper of the blood of Jesus has eradicated my mistakes. God has placed them in the sea of forgiveness. He hangs up his sign and says no fishing one party says your sins are as far removed from you as the east is from the west that is billions of light years traveling at 186,000 miles per second that's how far my sins are from me and when we bring them up God says why I have forgiven them I have forgotten them they are under the blood they're in the sea of forgiveness a lot of times the enemy will try to come before God and plead his case against us and he brings evidence and it's not always the best evidence. It's not always accurate, but the enemy never operate on accuracy. And he will bring accusations. And because he is so powerful and because he is so evil and because he is so volatile, there is not a lawyer in America that can go against the devil and win. No matter F. Lee Bailey, any lawyer you were to mention, Cochran, any of those that, that, that you've seen, there's not a lawyer that can go against the devil. So I don't have the ability or the funds to appoint a lawyer to represent me. Therefore, heaven appoints me a lawyer. His name is Christ Jesus, and he ever interceded at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for me. And when the devil goes before God and produces all the evidence against me, my lawyer says, Your Honor, may I examine the evidence. And Jesus takes all the evidence against me, and he holds it next to his bosom because there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood. There's still the liquid paper of the blood of Jesus. And when he touches that evidence, it's all gone. It's all blotted out. And then God says, devil, I don't know what you're trying to pull, but whatever you presented to me, it's all blood. It's the blood of my son. And because the blood's been shed, you're out of order. This case is dismissed without sufficient evidence. And he looks at me and says, you are released to go and be what I've called you to be. Do what I've called you to do. Go in all the authority of heaven by the blood of Jesus. That should excite Someone in this building this morning. 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are in the process of becoming new. It's like that transition of that grain of sand to become a pearl. Or that caterpillar turn that beautiful monarch butterfly. The moment you get saved, you don't automatically become all that in a bag of chips. It means you're forgiven. It means now you start over. Justification is just as if I had never sinned.
There's a, there's a, there's a door, there's a window that we, you learn, you read, you study, you pray, you pray, you learn about God, you love what God loves, you hate what God hates, and, and you go through this process where that, that, beautiful, that, that beautiful pearl comes from that little ugly grain of sand. That beautiful monarch butterfly comes that ugly looking caterpillar. So na- it's so nasty, even the bass won't eat it. I try to put a caterpillar on a, on a worm, on a hook and throw it on the lake and they will ignore it. That's how that's how nasty some of us have been and where we come from. But we are in the process. Look at somebody and say there's a metamorphosis taking place and I'm going through a transition. I'm about to transform out of here and I'm become what God wants me to be because it is written and declared in his word. Is there a ladder out of this pit? Absolutely. David said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He heard my cry, brought me up out of the horrible pit, set me in a rock, put a new song in my mouth. Many shall see it and fear the Lord. This ladder has three rungs. And the first rung of this ladder is simply the rung of repentance. It's just acknowledging I am where I am because of the decisions I made. I'm sorry for those decisions. I'm sorry for my actions. And I want to repent. There was a little boy that every night his mom would come in with a wash rag, a warm wash rag and soapy water. And she would scrub his neck and ears. I mean, she would she she put the hurt on him and she made sure he was clean, got all the stuff out of his ears. And it happened every night. One night she came in and he was he was so tired of being scrubbed by this wash rag. And he looked at his mom and said, Mom, tonight, couldn't you just dust me off? You know, a lot of people come to the altar and say, well, God, couldn't just dust me off. But God is not in the dusting off business. God is in the repentance business. The Bible says in the book of Romans that all of sin comes short of the glory of God. The Bible says in the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The book of Romans says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible says in the book of Romans, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus was raised from the dead, then you shall be saved and you shall be cleansed and there shall be no iniquity held against you. The book of Romans is a pretty cool book, isn't it? When it tells it that we can, we can come to the altar We can repent. We can ask God to forgive us. And he does. How many times? Seven times a day. Seventy times a day. Seventy times seven. The Bible says if we come with an open heart, that doesn't mean that we have permission to pollute grace. Doesn't mean I walk out here, get dead drunk, fall down, beat somebody up, go to jail and then say, well, Lord, you're going to forgive me. So I'm going to go out and do it tomorrow because I know you can forgive me. No, that's that's not what grace is all about. But grace is the process of God forgiving us because we ask him to do it with the attitude of, I really am going to try to do better. That's, that's all it is. Faith without works is bad. It's, it's, like, it's like trying to find a model, trying to find, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. It's trying to bring positive people in our life, positive decisions in our life, trying to do the right thing, knowing that this right here will bite us, hurt us, wound us, and come back and cause like a scorpion We'll keep trying to keep trying to sting us, our, our past. And God said, I want to take your diary and I just want to throw it in the trash can and pour some of that Holy Ghost oil and set it on fire and just remove all the things that have bound you and hurt you and wounded you. And he said, I want to do that today. And that's what repentance is all about. The second step of that repentance is called the process of restoration or restitution. When, when Zacchaeus was was invited to come down from the tree because Jesus was going to his house. When Zacchaeus had a touch from God, he immediately said, anybody I've wronged, I'll repay them. 
Anybody I mess up, I'll give them four times back. I'll give half of what I got to the poor. There's something that happens when you really touch God. You know, what's so funny. I'll be careful I say this. When I gave my heart to the Lord, I had long hair. And uh, I didn't wear socks or underwear. I was a free spirit. And when I was in that vein, nobody cared. Nobody cared. Nobody, nobody cared how I dressed, how I wore my hair. They didn't, they didn't care. But the moment, the nanosecond I got saved, everybody had an opinion. You need to cut your hair. You need to go here. You stop doing this. Stop doing that. Don't, 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 don't. It's called, it's called clothesline religion. And it's real popular in the early 70s that everything was based upon appearance. If, if, your hair's, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a woman, your hair is down to here and your sleeves are down to here and your hymns down to there, then you're godly and holy. And what you wear has absolutely nothing to do with holiness, nothing to do with. But what I've learned, Keith, when I gave my heart to God, <coughs> there was a bunch of stuff I didn't want to do. I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to smoke three packs of Marlboro cigarettes a day. I don't want to drink any more Michelob, Lombrow, Dos Equis, none of that. I don't want to put any more drugs in my body. I didn't want to steal anymore. I didn't want to lie anymore. I didn't want to cheat anymore. I wanted to be healthy. I wanted to be whole. And I found that all through the word of God. And that's the process that God, when he, when he saves us, he usually puts in our heart a hunger that we got to go to church every time the doors. How many remember that? When you first got saved, I mean, if there was revival in town, it didn't, it didn't matter what church you, you went. If there was a Bible study, you wouldn't be a part of. If there was a celebration recovery, you were there. AA meeting, you were there. It's like you had to, you couldn't get enough of the praise, the worship, the anointing. The, you couldn't get enough of it. And oh, that we could go back to that season of our life. That, that we, those of us, I'm going to serve my Lord a long time. Someone stood up and said, I've been in the way 35 years. And the pastor on the platform said, she sure has. She's been in the way. <laughs> I, think, I, think, I think it's easy sometimes to lose our appetite. And to lose our hunger and set right in the, in the, in, you can go to the greatest, you can go to what you would consider to be the greatest church, whether it's Joel Oldstream or whether it's Steve Federick or, or wherever it might be. The church has got it all together and you can sit there and actually die in that pew because you're not giving, generating out what God has put in your heart and spirit. You were created to do something. And next week, if, if the God allows me to, I'm going to talk about the thing that you're probably lacking to be what you want to be is probably the God touch. God made you incomplete, so you would need him to become complete. You say, well, I can't do that because I don't have this. That's probably the one thing that God is getting ready to give you. Does that excite anybody in this building? That, that, that ability for restoration. In Joel, the second chapter, God makes a promise. He said, I will restore, and he names four bugs, four caterpillars, worms, crawly things. And as you look at what God said he would restore in Joel, one of those insects attacks your seed. One of those insects attacks your root, your foundation. One of those insects attacks the leaf. And one of those insects attacks the fruit. So everything the enemy has stole from you, your foundation, your seed, your prosperity, your covering, God said, I will restore. I'll give back years that the enemy has stolen from you. Amen. And I pastor so many people that they're, 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 they're my age now. And then 
and they, they had a, a real, real rough childhood or something happened in their childhood or something happened. And then all of a sudden God brings people in their life that are much younger that God has called them to be spiritual parents. And what they didn't get from their natural children, now they're getting it through spiritual children that God is absolutely restoring things that have been stolen from them. And, and that's all involvement in what God is doing in the local church. Somebody say amen. Praise the Lord. That's good preaching. The third thing. Repentance, restoration. Restoration is the process of this guy that I have all these, these attitudes with. He will never, ever receive me with an apology, ever. He won't. He's a narcissistic idiot. He will never allow me to go to him and say, I forgive you. For all the junk you've done to me, he'll never, that'll never happen. That'll never, that'll never take place. But there are things I've got to do to make sure that in my heart, I am willing and ready to present that apology. Does that help anybody? There are people in your life that have hurt you. They might be dead now. They might be, do I have time to share that? Pastor Ron and I were in Maryland. Great church. Second day of the revival, the pastor said, hey, we've got a Family church, they've got a daughter who's been crippled since she was 12. They're a great family. They love the church. They support the church. They're always here. They said, would you mind going over and having a word of prayer for the daughter? The daughter's now 23, 24 years old, hasn't walked in 10 years. I said, absolutely, we'll go. Am I telling tell it like it is? So we went to the house, and there we met a beautiful, beautiful mom. Her husband had died. And we met this girl, and this girl was like 22, 23, just a precious, precious, uh, uh, just, a, just a precious a wonderful person to, to talk to, to be around. But as I, as I was sitting there in the living room, God began, to, God began to speak some things to me. God began to share some things to me about her. And I took the liberty to tell her what I felt like that the Lord had showed me, what the Lord had told me. And as we are, as we are in the process of, of talking back and forth, come to find out that her dad had, her dad had made some wrong approaches her dad had made some, made some advances towards her, and in that advance, she found herself crippled. Dad was dead. She's trying to go on with her life. And so I asked the mom, I said, can I, can I be obedient to the spirit? The pastor and his wife were sitting there with their mouths wide open, and they were like freaking out. They'd never seen the word of knowledge in that particular vein. Usually in church, the word of knowledge, but, you know, someone's home, that's, that's really different. And I, I didn't ask them permission because I was afraid they are going to freak out on me. But I got a chair. And I set the chair down right in front of her wheelchair. I said, I know your dad is there, but I want you to put your dad in that chair right now. And I want you to confront your dad. And I want you to tell your dad what he did was wrong. The mom never knew it. The mom never, the mom never knew that the dad had molested the daughter ever. And so she began to confront him. And she began to tell him what he did was wrong. And it got very loud. It got very verbal. And then she began to weep. And then she, she told him that she forgave him for what, and, and she had no ought. She had, no, she had no ill towards him that he was forgiven. All of a sudden, across the room, mom stands up, begins to cry. This girl that's been confined in this wheelchair for 10 years gets up and walks to her mom. And they embrace in the middle of the living floor. We just start wailing. We start bawling. That night, that church, I'll never forget it. It had a great big entrance, and it had steps going all the way up. And she couldn't go to the church because no ramp. That night, the entire church got there early and watched that girl walk up every single step and went back to church. First time in 10 years she's been to church. Why? Because she forgave someone that hurt her. 
so if, if they're in, in this restoration, if there are people in your life that have wounded you or hurt you, or there are people in your life that you know you've hurt and wounded, it's up to you to try to make it right. And here's what the word says. If you go to them and, and they don't accept you, you've done what God's called you to do. You've done everything. If they're a part of this body, they have to accept you. The word said, if they don't accept you, go get an elder. And then the Bible says, if they don't accept the elder, go get the pastor. Accept the pastor. The Bible says you are to cast them out of the church. That's some pretty strong, tough teaching for someone that will not allow you to apologize. That's how important God sees apology. The last step is to reconsider. Reconsider what? The grace of God. Because of the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes, Lot pitched his destiny towards Sodom. And then we find Lot at a place where compromise had come. Lot had moved in the city, was sitting at the gate as one of the elders. God came to Abraham and said, I just want to tell you, I cannot tolerate what's going on in Sodom, Gomorrah, and five of the cities. I'm going to trash it with fire. And Abraham realized that Lot and his family, wife and four daughters, were there in the city. Abraham began to negotiate with God. So with God, if you find, and we're probably talking about two or 300,000 people. And, and Abraham said, God, if you find 50 righteous people, will you spare the city? And God said, yeah, I'll, I'll find 50 righteous. And then you see Jews doing what Jews do best. Abraham began to Jew God down. Well, if you find 40, will you spare it? If you find, and you know what? He got all the way down to 10. Okay, watch this. There were four daughters. There was Lot and his wife, which were six. There were two husbands, that was eight. If just the family of Lot had been holy, they only needed two more to spare the entire city. They couldn't find it, so what, what did God do? God sent angels. They brought Lot and his wife out before the fire rained down and before it trashed the... Before it trashed the and the whole time, Abraham's up on the mountain interceding, praying for, for Lot and his family. May I tell you this morning... When all of hell pours out of heaven upon this world for its sin, I have a praying friend that ever liveth in a portals of glory, making intercession for me. And before all hell pours out upon this earth, my friend's going to remember me, and my friend's going to transport me, translate me, transform me out of this world into that place that's called beautiful land where I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Reconsider what? The amazing grace of God. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me on. Josh, if you'll help me on the keyboard. Matter of fact, you just go ahead and do it by yourself. I won't, I won't play with you. We could do chopsticks. Or we could do heart and soul. We could do let me be there in your morning. There was a guy. I knew enough about his ministry to know that he was credible and to know that when he said he heard from God, he really did. Evangelist missionary pastor desmond having a really really tough time there were just and they're just seasons that that you just go through tough times just robert Schuler, who had the privilege of meeting almost 40 years ago built a library for his personal estate wrote the book tough times never last but tough people do but there are there are seasons when you really feel like what's the use what what, what what's what's the use why 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 bother? Why, why push on? Why 
especially in restoration ministry when you see so many people go back to where God brought them from and like a dog returning to the vomit. You say, why? What's, what's, the, what, what's the use? Well, he was in one of those windows of his life where he's really, really discouraged. He was really, really frustrated. And he went to bed one night and the baby had a dream. And in this dream, he was sitting in a, in a, in a baseball stadium and he was up over the, the home plate and he was watching this game. And he looked over the scorecard and the rivals had three points and the other team had zero. And as he looked out on the field, he saw the team of Satan was on the field. Satan was pitching, lust was on first, rebellion was on second. The entire team was the devil's team. And then he looked and he realized that God's team was taken on the devil's team. Then he realized, I'm dreaming, but this is a spiritual dream. And so caught up in the moment with all the fans and all the hoopla and all things going on, he watched as this big old strong, healthy athlete walks towards the plate, swinging three bats, throws two to the side, stands up the plate on the back of his jersey, says, love. Devil throws his best pitch, love, knocks it over shortstop's head and goes to first base. The crowd cheers. Next guy walks up to the plate, lean, mean fight machine, muscular, and on the back of his, on the back of his jersey, it said wisdom. Wisdom stood there, the pitcher got so intimidated by wisdom, he threw four balls. Wisdom walked to first, love went to second. Third guy comes up the plate, swinging five bats. This guy is faith, and he is a monster, and he's a big old boy. The devil throws his best two pitches on the third pitch. Faith hits it over the third baseman's head. They all advance. Bases loaded. Scores enemy three, God's team zero. So he's sitting up there, he's caught up in the moment, and he's thinking to himself, who's God gonna send in as the cleanup hitter? Who's gonna be the cleanup guy? And he's trying to just, I can't possibly imagine who, who's it gonna be? Is it gonna be, is it gonna be peace? Is it gonna be prosperity? Is it gonna be, is it gonna be, what, who's it gonna be? Hope? And all of a sudden, this old, scraggly looking guy, probably a lot like me, just a scraggly, his uniform didn't really fit very well. And he couldn't see, his, his, his uniform was so big, he couldn't see what was written on the, on, the, on, the, on the back of his jersey. This little skinny old man walks up to the plate. You could tell he's making the devil nervous. Whatever he is, whoever he is, he's making the devil nervous. And the devil throws him a pitch right down the middle. And this little old skinny guy, like he'd been doing all of his life, stuck that bat out there and hit the ball over the center field fence. All the stands are roaring. Everybody's screaming. Everybody's running around the bases. Here they come. Here comes love. Here comes wisdom. Here comes faith. And then coming down the third baseline as he gets ready to touch the plate, this evangelist sees across his chest right here the word grace. Grace. He starts crying. And he notices someone sitting next to him. It's the Lord. The Lord will always sit next to us in tough times. I promise you, you are not alone. And I'll never leave you or forsake you, even when you feel like the world is ending. When you've come to the very last hope, I'm still there. I'll never leave you or forsake you. 
so he starts talking to the Lord and he goes, Lord, I realize this is a dream and I realize you're encouraging me and I'm encouraged. I said, Let me ask you something. I understand why love let off because love never fails. I understand why wisdom didn't strike out against the enemy because wisdom doesn't strike back. I know faith will always advance in the kingdom. He said, but God, why, why grace? He said, you're right. Love will get you to first base. Wisdom will get you to second. Faith will carry you to third. But it will always be grace that will bring you home. It will always be grace that will bring you home. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Just for a moment, could we all over that? Could we just stand right where we are? Just I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I'm just going to ask you to stand right where we are. As every head is bowed, as every eye is closed, first of all, if you've wandered away from the Lord today and you're not where you need to be and you know it and God has touched your heart this morning and you feel Him imploring you to come home, come back, He accepts you and loves you just the way you are, just with all of our frustrations and all of our shortcomings. He loves us just the way we are. You say, Pastor Hank, don't embarrass me. But I really need to come back to the Lord today. I really do need to call upon the name of the Lord, to repent of my sins, to make him the Lord of my life. I really need to do that. That's where you're at this morning. Just put your hand up, put it right back down. Didn't want this moment to pass us by. If you're if you're here and say, Pastor, I just need to I need to come home today. Is there one? Is there one? And I'm gonna I'm going to believe this morning that we're all born again Christians and we love the Lord. And here's what I want you to do. I want you with me. I want you in your spirit. David said, give ear to my word, O Lord, consider my meditation. I want you to meditate this morning. And most of us can remember the old blackboard at school. That old blackboard, that chalk would creak and give us the heebie-jeebies. And maybe you were assigned to wiping the, the chalkboard down every day. Maybe that was your assignment. Or maybe you wrote a hundred times on the chalkboard, I will not talk in class. But you know what a chalkboard is. I want you to see it. I want you to see it with me. And if you can see that chalkboard in your spirit, I want you to walk right up to it. And there on the easel, there on the bottom of the chalkboard, there's some chalk. I want you to pick it up. And I want you to face that chalkboard. And I want you to write whatever it is. And it might be a list. It might be a plethora of things. But I want you to write on that chalkboard what is frustrating you. What is biting you in the butt? What is hurting you? What is hindering you? What is holding you back? Was it a bad marriage? Was it a bad childhood? Was it losing your children? Was it an abortion? Was it a bankruptcy? Is it a bad marriage? Is it chronic illness, sickness? Stuff always, there's always something there. There's always something. Whatever it is, I want you to write it in big, bold letters on the chalkboard. I want you to, I want you to, and nobody, Nobody knows what you're writing this thing, you and the Lord, no one else, just you and the Lord, write it on there. And when you're done writing, I want you to step back from that chalkboard. I want you to see a hand, a hand obviously that has a, a nail scar in it. And I want you to see that hand wipe that chalkboard with one swipe. And I want you to see that hand wipe that chalkboard and remove every negative thing that's hurting you 
that's wounding you, that's holding you back, that's keeping you from going forward. And then if you can see that blank chalkboard, I want you to see that hand, write these words. Whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are just, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things, and the God of peace shall be with you always. I want you to see those words, and I want you to know that's your word for today. Whatever can bring him pleasure, whatever can bring him glory, whatever can bring him praise, whatever good things he's put in my life, whatever virtuous things, godly things, I will start focusing on the positive I will start focusing and asserting the promises that he's made to me. And I will pursue the positive things that God has for me. No longer will I allow my past, the failures and successes of yesterday, no longer will I allow them to bind me or hurt me or wound me or like a scorpion sting me or like a snake bite me. But I will leave this place healthy and whole, free and clean. Not just a dusting off, but the liquid paper of the blood of your son would bathe me. Not once, not twice, but seven times. The blessings of God would layer my life. And like an onion that's being peeled, I will walk out of here with the blessings of the Lord attached to me. I declare this so. And if you will, will with Pastor Hank, just declare amen and amen. You may be seated.